it was really great to meet you. Thank you so much. And for, you haven't asked me about my flop shows. Oh, oh shit. Oh, that's right. Oh, oh. <laughs> we got to go back. We're going to put this okay, in. <laughs> reverse. Go back in time. We got to go back. So this is going to go back. All right. We're going to put this earlier. Editing, editing. <laughs> so we want to ask you something. Welcome to Cocktails at Table 7, inside New York's Joe Allen. In May of 1965, Joe Allen began life as a cozy neighborhood bar and restaurant in New York City's Hell's Kitchen. Located just a few blocks from Broadway, Joe's quickly developed a highly loyal clientele of young performers, writers, and creative types. The food was great, the drinks were stiff, and the fabled flop wall celebrating Broadway's most notorious bombs gave the room an added touch of insider charm. Over the decades, Joe Allen grew into a New York institution, and on this podcast, we'll celebrate Joe's history with longtime regulars who know it best. We'll hear from actors, producers, writers, musicians, neighbors, and friends who will share with us just what makes Joe Allen the place to be. So here's to old friends, new friends, and cocktails at table seven. Hey guys, can you believe this is our 25th episode? I can't believe it. 25. Are you sure? Jason, how are you still functioning? Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Define functioning. Yeah. Since October, we've done 25 episodes of Cocktails at Table 7 inside New York's Joe Allen. I think when you said functioning, did, did you imply functioning alcoholic? I'm just curious. <laughs> no, but, you know, share with the group. <laughs> oh, okay. Because that's how I've done it. This is, yeah. a, this is a very, very important meeting that we're having. Because we've been meaning to talk to you, Jason. Oh, yes. That's the intervention. There's not enough whiskey. No, not you're enough. not drinking enough. <laughs> enough. <laughs> uh, but 25. Hey, who knew? 25. We found 25 people that wanted to talk to us. Or 22 people and 21. A couple of double episodes. But that's not the point. There's 25 separate episodes. Sh- should I reveal that there are more people that will talk to us? I think you should. We already have people booked for what we're calling season three. Season three. Don't be too upset, but we're going to take a short little break. But we'll be back in June. We'll be back in June, just a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's the time where we've all finally been vaccinated. We can go see our family again. So that's probably what we're going to be doing. I know it's on my list. It's on everyone's list, but it's happening at different times. So we're taking a few weeks. We're recording a little bit. We're editing a little bit. Jason's editing a little bit. Jason's editing a lot. And it's very exciting. We have a lot of great guests upcoming. And um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. They're lining up. I, I sort of can't believe some of the people coming up. So I should just have you remove that line. <laughs> They're lined up and we have dates. And it's supposed to happen. So I'm going to believe Fingers it. Fingers crossed in the camera. But this week, we have Tony Award winner Frances Raffel with us. I loved her. She was really great. She, she's probably best known as the original Eponine in the London and New York City casts of a little show called Blame is Rob. Uh, she started before that, and she's done shows after. And I just wanted one thing I wanted to tell Frances, which I didn't, is that in 1987, she inspired the fashion of every single. <laughs> Uh, a, a dinner theater co-star actress. I was doing children's theater in Towson, Maryland, and I can't tell you how many newsy caps and wrinkled raincoats showed up at rehearsal. So she was a real trendsetter, both voice-wise, everyone wanted to sound like her, and all the girls, they were cute as buttons, all wanted to dress like her. So anyway, that's it. That's just a side note. I thought that would be a little piece of texture. I love it. I love um, it. I love it. And what and and what's going to come up in the interview and what I found most fascinating was her relationship to Joe Allen in London. Mm-hmm. Um, so she has a whole history of of being a child actor in London. We're going to hear about, but she she you know at first I was thinking I've seen her a few times at Joe's in New York. I don't know how regular of a customer she is, and it turns out she's pretty regular when she's in town. But she has a whole wonderful uh, history in London. There's one thing I wanted to clarify. We mentioned that she and I performed together at. A mutual friend, one of my dearest friends, Brooke. But I didn't say who Brooke was. So it's Brooke Josephson, singer-songwriter, did a show, and she and I were both guest performers. So that's what that's what that is. I knew who she was, but now that you're telling everybody, that's it's good to fill. We, we'll put all this stuff in the show notes. But she's always got something really fun going on, which you'll hear all about in the interview. So we'll see you in June. Actually, we'll you'll hear us in June. 
you'll hear our dulcet tones in June. And here is Francis Raphael. Cheers. Francis, this is Jason Woodruff. Up here. Well, I don't know where he is on your screen. The guy waving. Hello, Jason. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. And this is Sean Kent. Hi, Francis. Hi, Sean. My two partners in crime here. So Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's fun. Yeah. Well, you think that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it will be. I know. I know. We'll get know. started. First no, it will be. <laughs> so we were talking. I was telling the guys, I said, you know, the last time... I was singing on stage was with you at yeah. Brooke Josephson's birthday party in LA in October of 2019. And I was like, that's insane that it's been that long since. Yeah. Right. Or did you do any performing after that or? No, my last performance actually was January the 4th. Wow. Of the year, um, you know, COVID entered the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. I mean, we were talking about how, you know, we've had so many conversations with actors and artists and performers during this time about like what it means to be an artist and how you sustain yourself and you know even in in regular times and I I was saying I feel like you're one of those people that really is a definition of an artist like you've been working as an artist since you were a teenager and you're constantly creating new content and like interesting yeah. projects. I mean, <laughs> it's it's really cool. Like you really it's my ADD mind. I can't stop. <laughs> well, but it's you really live your life as an artist. And we were we were talking about that. Like, how do you sustain that for yourself in normal times and now pandemic times? And like, keep yourself so creative all of the time. Like, it's pretty incredible. Well, I have got quite a positive attitude to to creativity because partly um, it's Michael John Lacusa that. Um, when I felt down one day, I, I told him I was feeling low and he said to me, just make sure you create every single day. It will keep you going. So I always do that now. I, I mean, I always have been creative and always um, written songs and lots of different projects. But since he gave me those words about five years ago, I've literally gone so mad with all my creativity. And now it's an addiction with me. So and, and I'm lucky. I am lucky. I'm one of those artists that, that because of my age, um, because I had success at a young age in the times when they paid a lot of money to <laughs> to artists, I was able to um, accumulate uh, property and things. So I I, I actually I, I'm I'm a professional landlady, <laughs> and I, <laughs> I live out of a suitcase most of the time. So I do live like an artist, but I I do get um, income from rent, which supports me being able to create whatever I want to do. And being 55 years old, I feel you know, very lucky to be able to do what I want to do. Did you find that having a lot of extra time where you weren't going to be performing in front of audiences, I mean, as difficult as COVID was, was that beneficial to you creatively? Did it give you a chance to like bear down and focus on things? Yes. Yes, it has. Um, I I did spend quite a few months looking after my parents and I didn't have so much time then, but I have had a lot of thinking time. But um, I was supposed to open a show called Ruby's Poison that I co-wrote with my friend Gwyneth Herbert. And that was supposed to open off Broadway um, around October last year. So because that wasn't happening, I have had time to sort of relook at the show and edit it and and finesse it. So I feel that when that's going to happen, eventually hopefully I'll be in a better position for it as well so and and the other projects I've been creating yes I have had time to do it. I finished a play yesterday actually the first draft oh congratulations that's awesome yeah, congratulations yeah I'm really excited about because I, I am one of these people that often does have a lot of projects on the go and getting to the end of the projects is always the hardest bit um so to actually have a final draft that's going to have a reading in a couple of weeks time here in in London I'm in London at the moment by the way is really exciting for me as a writer and I'm not performing in it I'm just writing it so I'm going to be sitting there on the I call it the right side of the desk <laughs> and uh, <laughs> And it's going to be a really exciting um, moment for me. Is that a first for you to not be performing your own work? Yeah. Yeah. It is a first for me. I do tend to write things for myself, but it's. I've also got another play that I've half written and that has about 
about 10 characters in it and I have written a role for myself but it's not the lead so that feels good too you know not taking on too much responsibility just give yourself all the best luck <laughs> that's all you got to do I never thought of that oh yes you have do you know what I'm quite generous I'm a generous person <laughs> does it make you nervous handing that over to a group of people to hear it come back at you um no no, I'm not really nervous because because of the times we're in and the, because of everyone having a break, it's it feels very gentle and there's no proper deadline. And I, I'm looking forward to getting feedback and getting back into the room and rewriting, which I'll probably no doubt will be doing. So it will be the first time that I actually have that situation. It's almost like a workshop, but it's only a day. Can we ask what the play is about? Or do you um, not want to share yet? That's okay. Let me think. I haven't... Do you know what's interesting? You know you're supposed to have one liner. that You're meant to say what, what the show's about. Yeah, but because I literally finished yesterday, I haven't even thought about that. Oh, um, I, won't, I don't want to give too much away, but it's a woman rehearsing a play and she realises that her own life mirrors the play. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, cool. That sounds really interesting. And very theatrical. And yes. a perfect <laughs> time to like sort of examine it. <laughs> all my... So far, all the things I write are in theatres. <laughs> I'm obviously very theatrical. <laughs> well, that's a, that's actually... Well, you write what you know, right? <laughs> yeah. And is that is that something that you always wanted? I mean, did you... Was it always your dream to be a performer? Um, yeah, I think... I, I don't think I really dreamed about being a performer. I just knew I was going to be <laughs> from a young age. My, my parents took me to the theatre a lot. I read that your mom actually started a school for theatre in London. So you attended that as a young child as well? or Yes, I, I went to her school on a Saturday, all day on a Saturday. Um, and she then opened a full-time school called the Sylvia Young Theatre School, um, which I got expelled of. Oh, did you? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, but she had some great... Um, Rebels at her school, should I say. She had um, Amy Winehouse, the Spice Girls, and many um, big film stars, actually. Um, I don't know why I can't think of their names right now, but you could look them up. Sylvia Young Theatre School, lots and lots of fabulous people. So your mother homeschooled you and then expelled you from the school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love that. Never heard of that before. <laughs> I was a bad child. In fact, I, a lot of my childhood is in this play. I mean, I, I do find that every time I write a play, there is a bit of me in it, but it's not really completely me. You know, there's, you know, you always use your own experiences in when you're a writer or, or other people that you know's experiences. Where else are you going to pull from? Everything has got to be autobiographical to some degree. Yeah, unless, yeah. unless you're researching something historical and there's a you know character of interest. Well, actually, um, the play that's half written, there actually isn't anything about me in that at all. And it's um, set, it is set over 100 years ago. So was that? Is it based on? And it just not to. I'm not. It's not trying to be like a game show and guess what it is. But <laughs> no, no, I'm scared to give too much. No, away. no. Is there something about a, a period in time or a history historical event that inspired you to want to write this? Yeah, um, a lot of the music from that period of time I was brought up listening to, and I, I actually, I based my vocals on a singer called Kate Carney, which a lot of people don't know who that is, but my mum had the old sort of scratchy records of her. So that inspired me, but also um, just the whole, um, the way women were treated in the theatre back then, um, and the whole sort of way women were treated um, sexually back then, and also gay men back then um, in the theatre who couldn't be open about being gay, couldn't be get married like you can today. You know, it's it's looking at all, it's looking at all that kind of history in the theatre. It's been a lot of research actually. It's been quite hard work, but it is fun. That's awesome. Okay, so let's like kind of go backtrack a little bit here, and you know, you started out. Were you around 18 years old with Starlight Express? Was that, that was your first like big role out on the West End? No, actually, I was in the West End. Well, not big role, but I'll, I'll go way back. I was in The King and I when I was eight years old. 
as one of the princesses. Um, number five. Always my favorite <laughs> one. Yeah, she was my favorite one. The one, the one that looks under the, the one that looks under the skirt. I don't know if you remember that in the, in the march. That's very important. Um, and then when I was fifteen, I was in a big flop called Bernardo. Oh. I can still, I I can still sing the songs, and and I'll give you a little tiny wincy bit. Um, it was so bad. Snuggle up, snuggle up, snuggle up, snuggle up in clean sheets, clean sheets, soft white pillows, soft white pillows. There you go. Ding. Bravo. It didn't last very long. We we we. That's beautiful. <laughs> it's hard to find a lot of details about that show, but I did find something that was on, I guess it was like the news. I don't know if it was local news, but it was a story about the challenges of having shows with children in the cast. Yeah. So at one point in the West End, there was Oliver, Annie, and Bernardo. And so I don't know if you've seen this clip and I can send it to you, but there's a clip of the kids in Bernardo singing and dancing in a line. You might be in there. Oh, is there? I wonder if I'm in that one. I might be. Because in England, they have to do three groups. You're not allowed to do eight shows a week as a child. So we're in different groups. So um, I wasn't in the first group. I wasn't good enough to be in the press night. (laughs) I didn't get the press (laughs) night. But I was in the same group as Naomi Campbell, actually. Huh. Which oh, wow. is quite fun to know that she she could sing and everything, sing and dance. Uh, there was another Bernardo musical that apparently Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber did as kids. That's right. And they never, it was not produced until way later, but in the like 65, they used the same source material. We know nothing about any of this. We got to oh, did. No, we were, we were like, we were, when you sent that to me, I was like, guys, do you know what this is? And we were like, Digging for it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good to get um, an unusual one, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like a combination of Annie and Oliver, almost like you kind of mash. Yeah, the two. It, but just nowhere near as good. <laughs> 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 Even when I was young, I knew it was shit, basically. <laughs> How long did that play? I don't know. Not. I mean, I don't remember, actually. Not very long. It's not quite like New York where, you know, you get a bad review and it's off the next day. It always lasts a bit longer. And then, so after that, my next West End thing was, oh yeah, I was in a play, in a Terence Rattigan play with Omar Sharif. I don't know if any of you are old enough to know him. Yeah. yeah. Oh, of course. Dr. Zhivago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and which I did um, in the West End. And that was wonderful. I loved doing that. And then after that, I got Starlight. So that's... And I went into Starlight. I mean, I'm sure people ask you this all the time, but we have to know about your roller skating on stage. Like, I mean, I, I can't imagine an audition going in and being like, okay, strap on your roller skates and like show us your stuff. Like, what what was that like? You know, I I can't remember going in the room for the first time with roller skates. I don't think I did that. I think I went in as a singer. But I remember Andrew Lloyd Webber, when I was in the room, as I left, I said, oh, by the way, I can tap dance on roller skates. And I left the room and then Andrew Lloyd Webber went running out to me and said, "Um, can you really tap dance on roller skates? I said, yeah, if you tighten the wheels up, I I can. So um, anyway, I got the job apparently, even though um, I actually wasn't a very good skater. But you could tap dance on the skates. (laughs) (laughs) Had you actually tried that before? Or did you just sort of say it? Do you know, I had actually, because you know, you've got Funny Girl, the roller skate rag. Uh, When I was young, I actually did perform the roller skate rag with, um, but we had the, we really did tighten up the wheels. We kind of walked on them. That's so funny, because you know, they always say, just tell them you can do it and you figure it out later. So that's why I was curious if you yeah, actually done it. That was one of those. <laughs> right? I mean, that's a special skill. That is a special skill. <laughs> was it just bonkers working on that show? Because I, 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 I know it was wrapped around the theater and there were races and there's just, it, it sounds like the possibility for calamity is just extraordinarily high during that. Yeah, it, it was crazy. I mean, there were some terrible accidents. I don't even want to think about what happened in rehearsal in front of my eyes one day. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Um, but I was actually quite a bad skater. I, so I went to the audition without roller skating at all. Um, they had people, they advertised for uh, roller skaters and skateboarders. And there was a guy called Drew Williams who went in and um, he had never sung before. So he was the opposite way around. And he, he went in and on his skates and it was like a hall with a, sort of stage and um, a pianist in the corner and they said well you know show us what you can do and he looked around the room and thought well there's no bowls here there's nothing for me to really show off so he just 
jumped on the stage and then just somersaulted off the stage over the pianist and literally stopped, skidded stop, boom, right in front of the desk where they were watching. Huh? And apparently they turned around and said, we can do the show. We'll be able to do the show. And um, and and he um, he was in the show for about fifteen years, I think. I don't remember how long it ran in New York. It ran a fairly long amount. It was eighteen years in London. Yeah, I think it was about eighteen years. And also in Germany, I think it's been running for thirty years. And they apparently have the most spectacular set. We had an amazing set, actually. Um, so we had a, a round stage, which shined like glass. We had a bowl around the back. I don't know if you know what I mean by bowl. You know, when you see the skateboarders going up those sides. And then it went all the way around the auditorium. It was a big theatre. And we had a slight bowl at the back as well. And there used to be people that could get standing room and they literally could stand behind the bowl. And like, literally, they were putting their hands out as we went by, like a rock concert. Quite dangerous, really, if you think about it. Oh, it's just so dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was then there was a smaller track that went round some of the audience and if you were special you got a special seat in the middle of that and they had the hydraulics so they used to have this glass hydraulics that come up you know to protect the audience in case we fell off when we were skating around every time we went to that little bit the glass sort of railing came up and then there was a hydraulic bridge that we used to get up on and it used to take us up to the dress circle what do you call it mezzanine you call mezzanine in your so, and we skated around the mezzanine as well. Oh my God. It's making me go a bit cold thinking about it. It sounds terrifying. <laughs> it's, I don't know if they did all that. They were a, probably not able to do all that in, on Broadway. They probably had a little... Yeah, it wasn't as much. I actually, you know, I did go and see it, but I can't remember where they skated now, but it was definitely not as big a set as we had. But in Germany, apparently much bigger. It's just such a spectacle. I can't even... There's clips on YouTube and you can see it from the original run and the, there's a Tokyo production that there's a lot of clips from. I can't imagine being live and seeing it. It must have been like a rock concert. Yeah. And and the same people would come again and again. People got really into it. I couldn't wait to leave. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good segue because you did leave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you did another show. I'm not, I'm not trying to be ungrateful, but I did not enjoy being on skates every single night of my life. No, no, I know what you're saying. And you probably thought you might lose teeth or something. Yeah. Like, I don't need this. But let's talk about the next the next phase, which is you went from that into the London production of, of Les Miserables. Yes, and I have to say thank you to Starlight for that, because uh, Trevor Nunn directed Starlight, and if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have got Eponine. Which I was very lucky to get that role. Well, I think Dana and Sean and I could talk about that all day because we've got. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure. Because you know. we've got, uh, <laughs> we've got our, our memorabilia. Got our Let's program. see, we've got a few of these. You know, I these. know an astonishing amount about Les Miserables, and they make me look like I know nothing about Les Miserables. <laughs> they are super fans. Uh, I probably have about a third of it I could do from memory. I know you guys could do it entirely from well, memory. Well, I think. I think it's one of those. I think everyone has. Well, if you're if you're into musical theater or you have an artist of some kind that you like, I think it also depends on the time in your life when you when you saw that. I think I mentioned this to you, and I tried really hard the first time I met you not to fan out because we were like being professional and all that. But <laughs> um, I saw that show when I was eleven. You know, I had my cassette tape, and I listened and I sang along with you singing on my own until I wore out the tape and wore out the CD and everything else because it was. It like hit me as this phenomenal, amazing, like incredible piece of art at eleven. I'm still, but it 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 sort of shaped some of my concepts about what I love about musical theater. And for me, sort of vocally, things I wanted to be able to do was to sing like you. Frankly, well, you sing brilliantly. Well, thank you. <laughs> I heard your voice. I'm actually jealous of you. Oh my god. <laughs> 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 no, but I. You know, to what Sean was saying, like, I think it's one of those things for me. So that's why I I know weird little detail stuff. But what was that like for you? You're, now, we're Americans, so we're snobby about thinking Broadway is like the ultimate. I don't know if that's how it felt to you being being from England. But can you tell us sort of about that time a little for you? First of all, I, I was um, given um, so, some of the music to listen to, and I really thought this is one of the most these are the most beautiful songs I've ever heard they're all in French and and obviously French sounds beautiful doesn't it so I already love the music I 
I, in the rehearsal, I absolutely realised that I was in something special because of the story. I mean, the book was so brilliant. And um, and then people's performances. And I would, you know, watch Patti LuPone in rehearsal um, for her death scene and find myself crying and knowing that I had to pull myself together because I had to do my next scene. So it was a special a special feeling and we were very close cast but it was something nobody expected a Royal Shakespeare Company theatre piece to A, go into the West End and B, last forever basically. (laughs) I mean nobody expected, nobody expected that but we did know we were in something special Um, and then when um, obviously everybody wanted to go to Broadway and we were told you know, we can't get you to Broadway because of American equity. Um, we're going to try and take Colm. And, and it was understandable, you know. So when I got the phone call saying, you know, you're going to Broadway, it was just a, a, an amazing, amazing thing for a 21-year-old. And, you know, and I've been brought up loving theatre. So to think I could even ever be on Broadway, I, I mean, it was just amazing. And it really was, the the slogan was a musical phenomenon. And it really was a musical phenomenon in the sense that, I mean, this was the late 80s, and it was being covered on national news in the United States. I mean, it was in like Time Magazine. They did profiles. It was when musicals, and Hamilton did the same thing. It's the only thing I can, we were just talking before we started. It was the only thing in the same league in terms of people, something permeating culture, like pop culture across the board. And you were on The Tonight Show. You went to LA and you did this, you know, on my own for Johnny Carson. And I know you realized it was special. I'm wondering if you realize that this is not how anything really gets received. This was a kind of a one of a kind reception. Yeah, I was aware. I was aware of it. And oh, and the weird thing is we had a lot of bad reviews. So it was really the audience's word of mouth and a few of our TV performances that we did on, uh, we, we did them on the English show. I keep saying English, I mean British. <laughs> I'll get in trouble with the Scots for that. Mm, yes, um, <laughs> <laughs> the Irish and the Welsh. We are international. Um, yeah, so um, we um, performed on um, a show called The Terry Wogan Show. And that was um, on three times a week and everybody loved Terry Wogan. So people watched it. And so that helped sell the show as well. Oh, you, you're saying you got bad reviews in, in Britain, within the British press. Yeah, 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 in the British press. Because I in, I feel like in America, the reception was rapturous. Yeah, in America, everyone was very excited about us coming because we were already a really big hit by then in London. Sean, if you had half the knowledge of Dana or myself, you would have known about the reviews in Britain. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Well, I can't. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. No, it, it's just an irrational. That to not love Les Misérables doesn't make any sense to me. I'm, it's the only, it's the show of that era that I that I just I, I I feel like it will be around forever. I mean, it's a it's a classic piece. I think so too. Yeah. Based on a classic piece, so of course. I think that it's sort of a bit British to be a bit negative, and we all know that, right? And that's kind of also why I love being in New York. I feel like there's more positivity in the States than in, in Britain. We're all negative Noras in Britain. So I'm not surprised it got bad reviews. You know, no one likes success in Britain. But it really, it it just showed it was a people's musical. And that's I think they call it that even, don't they? And then once we got to the stage where you just couldn't get a ticket, then I got lucky because obviously I could get the house seats. Um, I had to pay for them. So, I I mean, I spent most of my wages paying for my friends to come and see Les Miserables. But um, I used to be able to swap them for things like Wimbledon tickets and things like that. You know, they were currency. Oh, very smart. (laughs) (laughs) We saw the clip of you on The Tonight Show with Johnny. And uh, that was such a moment. And that was also when The Tonight Show was the most watched show. Um, do you remember anything about that, about going and doing? I do actually. Shall I tell you what I remember? I was four months pregnant with my daughter, Eliza, and I actually was in hospital that day because I had terrible pregnancies. I was on a, I, I don't know if you call them drips in the States, where IV, you're on an yeah. IV. Yeah, IV. I was on a drip and I had to say to the hospital, you need to let me go because I'm doing the Johnny Carson show today. And I somehow, I don't know how I managed to do it. I threw up in the toilet in the dressing room just before oh I performed. Oh, my God. 
<laughs> so I do remember it very well. Well, he was really he was really charmed by you. You guys were really cute. It was, we would have never known. <laughs> um, and then I was actually asked to do the David Letterman show before that, but I wasn't allowed to because my contract um, with American Equity and with my visa situation was I wasn't allowed to perform on anything that paid you. And I think they actually pay you, even though it's a small fee. Um, I wasn't allowed to do the David Letterman show. I did the Johnny Carson show because I'd already left the show by then. Ah, so yeah, you 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 were you were a very young mom. Yeah, I mean that was you were a Broadway star, and then there you are. You're going to have a little yeah daughter. I won a Tony, and two weeks later, I was pregnant. <laughs> That's the way to do it. It was a happy night. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So yeah, I had three. Ch- I have three children. Um, so that's the other thing, and I think it keeps my feet on the ground. That must have been quite a a crazy time. Like you, you're a Tony. You're becoming a new mom. It like, was a bit crazy. Well, in this industry, especially where I think for women it's really hard because it's not necessarily looked upon with the most. It's not a career move, is it? Really? Yeah, like yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but you know, I. I couldn't give her up. So. Oh, no, my gosh, no, no. Um, and that's just my choice at the time because um, she was a love child. And has performance in her bones, you know. I mean, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Yeah, yeah. She's incredible. Yeah, she writes a lot. She performs. She's um, not in the theatre, although she has, when she was young, she did a little bit in the theatre, but she's an um, R&B singer. Oh, wow. That's it's great. It's nice, actually. It's really nice. Is that is that something, I mean, you see, did you, you did you kind of, want her to do that or was that something you thought would be like it would be it would be wonderful to see the tradition carried on or did you kind of caution her about the challenges of it or? i well i don't think anyone who works in the arts wants their children to do it because we know the ups and downs that we go through when she was 13 she said i want to be a pop singer and i said well you better start writing now if you want to be taken seriously and she did she literally listened to me also she was she was aware i, I used to have a music room and i would write a lot so she knew that I was working. She knew it was a job. That's actually a great. I think a lot of us, you would benefit from seeing people working on or people close to you. Seeing that they're actually putting in the time to make it happen is 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 it's a good bedrock. You don't you don't think it just comes out of the sky. Yeah, yeah. It looks like this glamorous thing, and you're like, oh, I want to sing, and then you find out, oh, I want to sing. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of work to sing. Yeah. She she has got an amazing voice. Um, I didn't know she had it when she was 13, though, so I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Please let her be able to sing. <laughs> yeah, she can sing. We were hoping you could explain to us, out of the loop Americans, what exactly Eurovision is, because <laughs> I mean, we know a little bit, but not what a big deal it is. And you represented Britain in what year was it? 1994 in the Eurovision uh-huh. competition? So Eurovision is something we all grew up enjoying and it's always taken as a bit of fun. It's never been taken that seriously. You know, when it's on, you know, nearly every family I knew have a Saturday night and watch the whole Eurovision and vote for their favourites, have a big party. It's something, it's a tradition really for the, for the whole of Europe. And it's, oh, by the way, so let me explain a bit more. Um, so each country um, enters a new song. So it's a song competition. But the sillier the song, the more likely they are to win. Or like gimmicky or strange. Yeah. Or so, it's sort of like about grabbing people's attention. Exactly. Um, so um, Michael Ball um, did it a couple of years before me. And the BBC always ran the Eurovision for, for Britain. And um, they asked me if I would represent the UK. And I was trying to be, you know, so cool at that time. It was late 20s. I was writing hip music. And I just really wanted to be, you know, I wanted to release an album and be very, very cool. So there was no way I was going to say yes. So I I said, no, absolutely not. I'm not doing Eurovision. And then they said, look, please come and talk to us. We want, you have a meeting with us. So I said, okay, I'll have a meeting with you. And then they, the way they talked to me, they said I could, you know, they will make make sure you have a really cool song and it's going to be different from any other Eurovision and you're going to be Britain's sweetheart. You know, you'll get your own parking space at the BBC, (laughs) all these things. (laughs) 
and eventually and it was also um a pretty bad recession time um and you know and i was i had got a finished album that i wanted to put out and at the time i didn't have a record label who were willing to put my music out so i sort of weighed it up and thought okay i'll do it and actually to be honest to give them the credit they did everything they said um they gave me great songs that eight songs that um so basically i had to sing all eight songs and then britain had to choose their favorite and they were fantastic songs um and the song we did for the actual um eurovision i am really proud of that song i think it's a wonderful song and it's and it is pretty damn cool then then of course um so anyway i i didn't win for whatever reason you know uk didn't win that year so i i let everybody down (laughs) but um the other thing was i had rather a it was a bad year in a lot of ways um so the bbc usually they're connected to the radio station the main radio station is bbc one if you i mean radio one if you get played on radio one you automatically have a massive hit of course that year they had this guy called matthew bannister who decided he was taking over radio one and there was no way he was having eurovision on radio one because he was making radio one into the coolest station ever what's his name say it again matthew bannister i think i got it right matthew bannister i think i got it right. what's your problem man <laughs> The thing is, it was the coolest Eurovision song there's ever been, I think. Lonely Symphony. We listened to it. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm I'm, saying that I didn't write it, so I'm not claiming um, that because I wrote it. I think the writers did a brilliant job. Um, anyway, so he didn't play it on there, apart from on Chart Show, because it still got in the charts, so he had to play it on the Chart Show, and that was like once a week on a Sunday. Do people still remember that song? It sounds like there's some some affection for it. Yeah, I, I mean, it sold a lot of, it did actually sell a lot, and um, there are people that still to this day say it's their favourite Eurovision song. But it's not an obvious Eurovision song. It was more of a subdued groove and not like... Quite chilled, wasn't it? I saw some, like, we looked at clips, I looked at some clips, and there was, like, Norwegian death metal, but they were dressed like clowns, and it's just just, crazy, (laughs) like, really weird. And Because, obviously, you want people to go, like, I'm going to vote for the heavy metal clowns. (laughs) That's what they want. It was a lovely message as well. It was about, you know, we will will be free. You know, it was just... It was so. It was a good message. We will rise. <laughs> you should record it now. Well, it's on Spotify. Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah. So it's out there. Yeah. During all of these like various times, were you going to Joe Allen? I mean, this is Joe Allen podcast, so we probably should ask you a few questions about that. But um, were you going to Joe's in London and in New York, and when you were back and forth? Yes. And- well, I actually um, went to Joe Allen's when I was. 12 or 13 years old and it became a bit of a thing that I would go to with all my friends and we were all young we were all theatre mad we would think it was so cool to go to the theatre and then go to Joe Allen's after and I don't know how we managed it honestly 13 14 my mum and dad just never worried about me I was they probably should have done but they just thought you know all we're doing is going to the theatre and going to Joe Allen's and they were right it's what we were doing and I had a big gang of um, theatre friends um, and though in those days in Joe Allen's, you, you used to go in, we're talking about London, you used to go in and if you were sent to the right side of the theatre of the restaurant, it was because you were not very important. <laughs> and the other, the left side was all the important people where we wanted to be, but we would never get put there. You know, we'd have to walk through that bit to go to, to the bathrooms. And um, so we'd always have a little look to see who was in. But we loved Joe Allen's um, and it was always a birth, you know, place we went for our birthdays and things as well. And eventually it got to the stage where I was always ushered into the other side of the restaurant. <laughs> and they used to, Jimmy on the piano used to play um, on my own or, or even Starlight stuff, actually. When I used to walk in, I used to have my entrance music. Oh, cool. <laughs> It was so cool. We spoke to Kathy from who's the manager at the Joe Allen in London, and she told us a lot of wonderful stories about Jimmy and how he would exactly spot somebody coming down the steps and immediately go into their number from the show. Yeah, he was so lovely. You know, he always, um, when he was alive, he always used to tell the story about Eliza in the cloakroom because we 
John and I um, came in um, with Eliza in one of those little Moses baskets. She was a tiny little baby and she was asleep and we popped her in. <laughs> you would never do it now, would you? We popped her in the cloakroom. Oh my God, I love it. That's great. We've had people check their dogs, but never a baby. <laughs> check a baby. <laughs> I love that. That is that is the thing I always wanted to do when oh, I went out to great. dinner with my wife. We checked this baby for at least just for an hour. <laughs> You better tip the coat check real well. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. And did you ever wind up spending much time in the one in New York or was it mostly London? Mainly in London, but I used to go to um, the New York one sometimes after Les Mis. And I used to go with Jane Krakowski and Jennifer Butt. Jane Krakowski, she was in um, Starlight at the time. So we'd we'd bonded because we were playing the same role. She played my role. And um, so we used to go and have chocolate cake. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, it was ice cream with chocolate fudge, I think, on top. But anyway, we used to go and have um, banana, banana cream pie, I think it was. Oh, mm-hmm. wait, hold the thought. Hold the thought. We have a whole menu quiz here. <laughs> oh, really? But anyway, we used to always go and have dessert. We didn't used to go for the whole meal after. Joe Allen in New York has a wall of posters of flops. And we like to ask everybody, if there's a particular flop, that they have a, 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 an attachment to, that they love. They have the flop wall in the UK as well. Um, in New York, I hope I get this right and I'm not imagining it, um, but I think it's Carrie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've seen Carrie there. And I did the original demos for Carrie, so I have a connection. Oh. oh. Did you sing Carrie? Yeah, I did the original demos. Um, so um, also, I, I have to tell you this. Um, I'm not quite sure if this was UK or in the States, but Trevor Nunn apparently sat down in Joe Allen's and noticed his poster was on the wall. He went, at last, there's a show of mine on their wall. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if he knew there were flops. He must have done. (laughs) I love that. I love that. I I think I'm pretty sure he knew what that wall was. I'm pretty sure he knew. (laughs) We had Betty Buckley on. And she talked to us all about the the experience of doing that show. Did you ever get to see it when it was it? Did you see it in London yeah. when it was? That was Barbara Cook, right? Yeah, I saw I saw it in London. Oh yeah. wow! And in the states, I think I saw it in both. I, you might be one of the only people that did that. Yeah, and probably <laughs> because you couldn't because it was such a short run. So and, only on for a week, wasn't it? Yeah, it was barely it barely ran. It was it's this it's a show that like if everyone who says they saw it saw it, they would have had like. 120,000 people in every single performance of the show. <laughs> because it's, yeah. like everyone says they saw it. I can't imagine they could have. There wasn't room. I managed to get on the wall in um, Joe Allen's in London but because there were only flops on the walls. But um, it's not a very happy reason. But um, there was a lovely actor called Michael Staniforth who died sadly in the 80s. And there's a picture of me and him because we would work together. In fact, we worked together at a time when he, when he died. And so that was always up in um, Joanna's. I was proud to sort of be in a photograph in Joanna's. It made me feel very special, although always reminded me of him, of course, which is a nice thing. Um, and in um, New York, do you, did you have the poster Smile? Isn't that the Jodie Benson Miss America pageant musical? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a pageant. It's based on a movie that Michael Ritchie made about beauty pageants. Because that's what the, the reason that show happened is the reason I got Eponine in New York because the leading girl in Smile was actually offered Eponine and chose Smile, sadly, but luckily for me. Oh, that is some excellent lameness trivia that Dana and I did not know. We did not know that. I knew that. (laughs) No, you did not. (laughs) Anne-Marie Bobby. Sure, I know Anne-Marie, yeah. She was cast and they didn't have anyone else they wanted for the role. And they had already started rehearsals in London. That's why it was a big, I mean, in New York, sorry. And that's why it was a big surprise when they called me to say, would you go to New York? Dana and I both saw your cabaret show when you did it in New York. Um, I don't think I ever bought a ticket quickly as I had when I saw that you were coming. So your Facebook ads team, whoever did that, they they got it. They nailed me with it. <laughs> and it was wonderful. You know, you have a, a very, and I know that she's an influence in your life as well, Edith Piaf, quality Chanteuse allure, especially during that show. And I could just 
listen to you sing in French all oh, day long. Thank you so much. I remember that you came to that, actually. Is the new piece that you were talking about uh, going to be a cabaret piece or is it is it something else? Ruby's Poison actually um, came from the show that you saw. I don't know if you remember, there, there were a few little poems in between. Um, mm-hmm. So some of those poems still exist in Ruby's Poison and it's just more and more, the whole show has become sort of a, a beat poem. Um with some songs in between, but it's, it was, it was, I think my cabaret show was the seed. Now it blossomed into, I don't know what you call it. I mean, it's a proper theater show now. It's going to have a set and everything. I love what you have, the description you have on your website about it. I'm just going to read it because it's, it's so, I don't know what the right word is, but you'll see. It says, uh, she'll wrap you in roses and drench you in her French perfume and offer you in song an empty glass of her humorous honesty, which will leave you reveling in her obsession for booze, boys, and bad behavior. <laughs> I mean, like, who doesn't want to see that? Yeah, That's like, I mean, I get, I get, now I know what the show's about. Yeah, it's like, there's... I don't. What's the right word, guys? It's like I. I would go visceral. I would say evocative. That's what it evocative, does. Evocative. Thank you for yes. me. But I don't want to be a smarty. So pants. we are talking about Ruby now. You, I just want you to know that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Not of Frankie. Course. Yes. No, there's no crossover there. No. 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 I wanted to read that because it's like it. It reminds me too of your other show. I. I I read that and I can see the influence that one has on the other. Yeah, you would definitely recognize some of the things from that. I, you know, follow you on Instagram and you have your yin and tonic. Can you tell everyone about yin and tonic with Sadie Frost? Well, I'm I'm a trained yoga teacher. I trained in 2003, although I never actually taught a proper class since I trained um, because the day I got my teacher training, I also got Roxy in Chicago. So I chose Roxy in Chicago. Um, I've always loved yoga. And in fact, I've always loved being a student. So I'm a real, I'm a forever student. And I don't see myself as a teacher. But during um, lockdown, I was working out on YouTube and things like that. And everything had pumping beats. And I, I don't just do yoga. I also work out as much as I can. And um, I decided that we needed mindful beats because there was so much anxiety in the world and I had already written a lot of the music um, with my um, another songwriting partner of mine called Sam Kay and um, so we decided Sadie and I to put yoga to the music and and workouts to the music and it was only meant to be for fun we're just going to stick it on well it is for fun to be honest just going to stick it on YouTube but actually it's become a bit of an obsession with both of us now we've got an Instagram we've got a website with the albums out we've got a proper album out Unitonic album and we're already writing the second album and we're recording most of it this weekend actually we're really prolific with our work and we've we've done a cartoon a meditation cartoon I mean, it's it's taken over my life. I have to make sure I don't let it take over too much. But um, it's a yin and tonic. It's all about fun, you know, doing yoga and having fun and feeling good. Uh, who is the little dog in those videos? That's Sadie's dog, who is I'm like this sort of stepmother of. <laughs> <laughs> the new, I'm actually really excited about the new album for Yin and Tonic because the first one is um, all in Sanskrit. This one we're writing in English and it's all positive messages. It's really hard to write positive messages in English without sounding a little bit naff. Um, So, um, but it's coming across. I don't know if you've heard the new track. It's not actually a track. We just did a little demo of the new song. The one that was just on, that you just posted, I think, maybe last week or so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I listened to that one. (laughs) It's really kind of inspiring to hear how you're not just like, doing evenings of cabaret but you're like generating material that's coming from a deeper place and you're like a lot of times performers actors wait for the right like vehicle to come along or the right material to come along and you sounds like you have have known all along to work in this way yeah it just happened naturally Uh, there was a time when um about 12 years ago is it now i just didn't have any work and i thought right i'm I'm gonna have to put together a one-woman show which really frightened me but I did I put it together and then someone said to me why don't you take it to the Edinburgh Festival and it was the best learning experience ever because you have to do a performance every single night for a month and so you learn on the job and by the end of it I felt like I knew exactly what worked in a one-woman show and then that's when it I started writing um, theatre from that that moment on but also the thing is um, what I find because of that now um, I'm not a very good client for my agents because 
I don't really like going for auditions for things. And I'll only really go if I'm really like, oh my God, I really love that. I really want to do it. I don't want to put myself in a position to be rejected, especially when I know that I'm writing things that I would like to do myself. You know, I just feel passionate about creating stuff for myself. But it's taken a lot of work. Well, every now and then there's like a Roxy Hart or something where you're like, I do want to do that. I want to do. Yeah, I love. I do love doing that. And I would love them to ask me again. I, I did do it uh, three times in Britain. Dana's wearing her Roxy Hart dress. Right my, my Roxy Hart shirt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> little little lace for you on this Thursday afternoon. Yeah. Um, we have our special Joe Allen questionnaire that we do at the end. Our last call questionnaire. It's based on the Proust questionnaire as adapted by um, James Lipton for the Actors Studio. And then we made our own Joe Allen version of that. We'll ask a question, just the first thing that comes to your okay, head. Okay, I try my best. I'm not very, I'm, I'm quite slow thinker, but we'll, we'll see. This, this, <laughs> should be, this should be breezy. You'll like this. Um, what's your drink at Joe Allen? Um, martini with a twist. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Makeup artist. <laughs> Why that came out of my mouth? What was that? I didn't hear that. <laughs> Makeup artist. That's probably still in the same zone, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> uh, are you a pre-theater or a post-theater person? Post. No, actually, I mean, I'm not allowed to say more than one word. But I'm <laughs> you can a say more than one. <laughs> no, you're allowed to say more than one word. I think I- I'm slowly, slowly becoming a pre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> we all do that. <laughs> What live performance that you saw floored you the most? Liza Minnelli at the Palladium. What's your favorite dish at Joe Allen? I always go for Caesar salad. Hot fudge pudding cake or banana cream pie? (laughs) There's your question. (laughs) Right now, I would say banana cream pie, but I love them both. Uh, What's your favorite curse word? Fuck, I don't know. Is that, am I allowed to say that? Yeah, say anyone you sure. want. Is that is that a curse? Not anymore. <laughs> it's gotten thrown around so you much. You can't have too many fucks in, uh, <laughs> in a play. I know. <laughs> and finally, pick one word to describe how you feel about Joe Allen, the establishment. Home. That's awesome. I tried to go to Joe Allen's a few... I was in New York a few weeks ago, and it was still closed. What's going on? Yeah. It's, I was dying to go. When the theater is getting back up and running we'll be able to yeah it kind of doesn't make sense until it makes sense but, you know it's gonna happen we just gotta be patient i look forward to being back see if we can't find a space uh on the wall for a picture of you <laughs> and just put it somewhere and see if you can't find, find it. it yeah it'll be a little scat it'll be a little francis photo scavenger hunt yeah well that the one in in the uk is a bit like that I, everyone has to start looking for it because it's not in a very prominent place Thank you so much for doing this. Lovely seeing you all. We like to close out with a little toast. Hang on. I'll hold. I'll hold. So this is not a martini. This is... That's okay. It's after five o'clock where you are. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. This is a um, rosemary and rose water in water. Oh, that sounds delicious. That's very yin and tonic. Very yin and tonic. Well, ladies and girls, to good friends, great nights at the theater, and cocktails at table seven. Oh, yes. I can't wait. Cheers. 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 Thank you so much, Francis. We so appreciate this. Thank you so much. Cocktails at Table 7 is produced by Jason Woodruff, Dana Mirlock, and Sean Kent, with theme music by James Rubio, and logo design and artwork by Christina D'Angelo. Special thanks to the owners of Joe Allen, Orso, and Bar Centrale Restaurants.